0: This special pre-Rosh Hashanah podcast is dedicated anonymously in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Brett Adam Rosenthal, who passed away this past week. May his soul be elevated in heaven and may his grieving family be comforted among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. We are on the cusp of the high holidays. Rosh Hashanah is on the doorstep. And, of course, Yom Kippur soon to follow. If you would like me to include you in my Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur prayers, please send me an email with your, preferably if you have it, Hebrew names, full Hebrew names, your full Hebrew name, your father and mother's full Hebrew name. If you don't have that, just send me your name. I'll be happy to include it in my prayers. My email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com. We are about to begin a very special part of the year. We are embarking on the ten days of repentance, and our sages tell us, quoting a verse in Isaiah, "Dear Shu Hashem so You should seek out God when He can be found. There are times where, where God is accessible; God can be found, and there are times where God is less accessible, and it's much harder to find Him. When is God accessible? Says the Talmud, when the time of Rosh Hashanah comes, when the season of repentance begins. When we have the 10 days of repentance from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, that's the time. Those are the 10 days of the year where God is the most accessible. Of course, throughout the year, God is accessible. We could pray throughout the year. But there are times where our prayer is especially efficacious and our connection is especially strong. And therefore, we should seek out God during this time. Because access is now more available, more freely available. Now's the time to jump on this opportunity. And it's an important component of this. There's something we have to risk. There's something that we can lose because God is close now, but the rest of the year, God is less close, less accessible, and therefore we don't want to lose this amazing opportunity. These are the days where we begin the year. We're about to have Rosh Hashanah and we set our course for the year upcoming, it's also days when we can transform ourselves and accomplish more in our efforts of self-improvement, of character and ethical refinement, of trying to accomplish whatever it is that the Almighty placed us on this earth to do. these are the days we can accomplish that more than any other days. We have 10 days called the 10 days of repentance, the 10 days of closeness. It is bookended by Rosh Hashanah, two days of Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment and Yom Kippur, the day of mercy and atonement. And the thread that is strung throughout all these days is repentance. And this is a subject that we've spoken about in the past. And today I want to do something a little bit different. I want to talk about the seven wonders. repentance. There's the seven wonders of the world and there's seven wonders that are just out of this world from a different universe, the seven wonders of repentance. Now, why are we calling repentance something wondrous? It's based upon a Talmud in the book of Psachim on page 54a and this will get our discussion started. The Talmud is talking about the timeline of creation, and it says that there were seven things that preceded the creation of the world. So day one of creation, of course, we read about in Genesis. We're going to read about in a couple of weeks. Genesis, day one, day two, day three, everything that happened. Day six, of course, is Rosh Hashanah, is when Adam was created, when Adam was booted from the garden, when Adam was commanded not to eat from the fruit, etc. But there were seven things, says the Talmud, that were created before the world was created. And the list is really interesting and maybe even a bit surprising. Number one, Torah. Torah preceded the world. We remember, of course, fondly, the famous Talmud that tells us that when Moshe went up to heaven to get the Torah, the angels objected by saying the Torah preceded the world by 974 generations. How could he give it to lowly men of flesh and blood? Torah preceded the world. Number two, repentance. Repentance preceded the world. Gan Eden, paradise, preceded the world. Gehenom, purgatory, preceded the world. Kisei HaKavod, God's throne of glory, preceded the world. Beis HaMikdash, the holy temple, preceded the world. Vishmo Shel and the name of Messiah. These are the seven themes that preceded the world, tells us the Talmud in the book of page 54a. And of course, you read this Talmud, and right away you see that something is very deep going on over here. What exactly do these things have in common? What does it even mean that the temple preceded the world? Wait a minute, the temple was built you know, by King Solomon, first temple, second temple by Ezra. How did it precede the world? What does it mean? It means the spiritual temple. And there's something very deep about what these seven things are. But specifically, what exactly is the common theme of this list? is a subject discussed by our sages. And the most consensus approach is that these seven themes, Torah, repentance, shuva, paradise, Gehenna, purgatory, the holy throne of God, the holy temple, and the name of Messiah, these are themes that the world cannot exist without. And they have to be made in advance. The only way to have a world is if we have these seven themes set in place ahead of time. That is the common answer to explain at least just the basics of this very profound teaching in the Talmud. But I want to suggest another answer. I want to suggest that once the world is created, these things would not be able to be created. These themes violate the rules of the world. They're so supernatural that once you have the rules of nature, the rules of physics, the, the limitations, the rigid and fixed strictures of this world, once the rules of the world, the limitations are set in place, these things are so wondrous that they can no longer be created. The only way the mighty could have created them is if He created it first, before the rules of limitation limitations were set in place, and once they're created, the mighty created the world, they made the rules after, and they're grandfathered in, because even though they can really not coexist with the rules of our world, as we shall see, they're so wondrous, but once they were here, once they were created, they get grandfathered in. And these seven things must precede the world, because had the world been created, they would not be able to be created once the world is established. And of course, we're going to focus on one of these seven things, repentance. But from this Talmud, it tells us that repentance is something unique and special and supernatural and wondrous. So we have the seven wonders of the world, and maybe this is the seven wonders of the pre-world. But we're going to focus on the seven wonders of repentance. Now, repentance, the sense that I get is that this subject is a bit daunting, it's a bit intimidating. I had a conversation with a friend of mine last week and we we're talking about repentance and he's like, ah, I'm not much of a repentance guy. And I think the reason why it's something that we are, you know, we struggle with is because it is associated with the most terrifying thing in the world. Sterier than monsters. Sterier than snakes scarier than aliens and public speaking. The most terrifying thing in the world is change. To actually change. To actually say the way I am is not ideal. Whenever our status quo is challenged, we get very defensive and cognitive dissonance just takes over and we are able to justify all our behavior. Because the most painful thing is for someone to say, you know what, I'm not perfect, and I need to improve, and I have flaws, and I have shortcomings, and there's so many things that I need to improve upon. Change is very difficult, and we get very territorial about our current state, defending it at all costs. We are terrified by change. We abhor change. We're frightened by it. It's very destabilizing. It makes us very uncomfortable, and therefore repentance is a scary word. I'm not much of a repentance guy, but today it's going to change. Today it's going to change. We're going to transform repentance from something very scary into something very fluffy and adorable, because we're going to talk about the amazing parts of repentance and the wondrous aspects of repentance, and that I think will hopefully transform our perspective on this very critical subject and will help us actualize these days, maximize these days, make the most of the opportunities inherent in these days and have an incredible Rosh Hashanah, 10 days of repentance and Yom Kippur. Our sages tell us that repentance is a great gift. It's a great gift that the Almighty created for us. The classic book on repentance, the Sha'areh Chuva, the Gates of Repentance, begins with the following line. This is the first line. From all the benefits and goodness that he might did for his creations, amongst all those benefits and gifts, they might have prepared for them a path to ascend from the lowliness of their deeds, and to escape the snare of their misdeeds, to spare their soul from destruction, and to remove from upon them his wrath. Repentance, maybe it's a bit terrifying initially, but our tells tell us it's one of the biggest gifts that the Almighty gave us. The Almighty gave us lots of gifts. The whole world is a gift. Everything we have Our, our fingers that bend and our mind that works and water that is easily accessible and a perfect Goldilocks zone of existing at the right distance from the sun and everything working out perfectly that we could flourish and live in this world. We have the ability to make an income and to live a good life and to enjoy tasty food and to see wonderful scenery. There's a lot of gifts somebody gave us. And one of these great gifts, maybe one of the best gifts is repentance. But I think that it's a gift, but, you know, sometimes gifts come packaged, and the packaging is a little bit scary. I don't know. Is this a gift, or is this a gift from the Unabomber? It looks a little scary. And that's what we want to change today. We want to make the packaging nice as well. And we want to focus on the wonder of repentance. Why is it so unique and unprecedented that it must precede the world? So we made a list. The seven wonders of repentance. There are seven aspects about repentance that are so unusually novel and wondrous, and all of them, of course, are skewed in our favor, that I think learning about this will make the subject more interesting and approachable and make our 10 days of repentance more efficacious. So let's begin. The first wonder of the pre world, the first wonder of repentance, is that repentance cleanses. In our world, this is not true. A deed, once it is done, cannot be undone. You could try to fix it. You could try to rectify it. You could try to mend it. You could try to pay for it. But it's impossible to mate that the deed never happened. Tells us the Rambam, the laws of repentance, chapter one. Law number three, ha chuva mechaparas a chuva repents for all transgressions. And even if a person is a sinner their entire lives, and they do chuva, they repent at the very end, none of their misdeeds is ever acknowledged by the heavenly court, none of their previous wickedness is on their file. Repentance completely expiates. Expunge, excises, removes any trace, any hint, any sniff, any scintilla of the transgression. You emerge from it completely cleansed. When you ask a man for forgiveness, maybe they'll give you forgiveness, but the relationship is not quite the same. Uh, So there's some scar tissue, some effect of the misdeed, lingers. With repentance, there's no scars. There's no baggage. You emerge from it completely cleansed. Now, the mechanism of how this works is fascinating. Repentance creates the possibility for a person to change identities. You grew up, you're John Smith, and now you're a different person. You could change and create a new person. Could you imagine this world is happening? A person does a crime and it's on tape and they have him dead to rights and he goes to the judge and says, yeah, but I got a name change in court before you caught me. It's a different person. That person did it. That's the person I used to be. I'm a different person now. Could you imagine selling that to the court? I changed my identity. Doesn't work here. But in this pre world where repentance was created, that's exactly how it works. You can shed your previous identity and you could tell God in the heavenly court, yes, you have it on tape, I'm dead to rights. And again, with God, everything is taped. He knows everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we even contemplate and think. But you can legitimately tell God in his court, that wasn't me, that was my doppelganger, I didn't do it. And he'll say, you know what? You didn't. What have you mentioned? You can say, Listen, I didn't know who did that crime, but it sure was not me. That is quite wondrous, quite supernatural. Now the Talmud tells us that if a person does a sin, rebels against God. And he says, you know what? I remember they told me that actually you can repent for it. So I'll do the sin and then I'll repent. For such a person, repentance doesn't work. And there's deep insight. The way repentance works is that you're a different person than the person who did the sin. But if when you were doing the sin, you were thinking about, I'll do repentance, it's the same guy. Both people said, I'll do the sin and I'll repent. You can't change identities. It's only once you made a sin, God forbid. And listen, you made a mistake, did a crime against God. And then you felt bad and you regretted it and you wanted to walk away from it and you wanted to change yourself. Only then does it work. But if you're the exact same guy or gal, you're the exact same person who did the sin, you did the sin and you said, ah, I'll fix it later with this magic of repentance. We learned about, oh, wonders of repentance. Then you are the same person and it doesn't work. But the way repentance works is quite supernatural And unprecedented. Now, the reason why we're maybe not as moved by wonder number one is because to us, the whole idea of spirituality and the soul and and God and heaven and the angels and Torah and Sinai, those things tend to be a a little bit fuzzy, a little bit abstract. It's a theoretical idea. You know, if you're by a red light – and there's no one around. Like, you could just make a left turn. There's no, there's no cameras. There's no nothing, right? So I'm not judging you if you've ever done that. But you can make a good argument. Hey, you know what? I'll just, I'll just save myself 15 seconds and make the left turn. But let's say it's the middle of the night. There's no one around, but there's one car behind you. And this car happens to have lights and sirens on top of it. It's a cop. Would anyone make that left turn? Or you'd say, you know what? Better be safe. I'll just, I'll wait for the light to turn green. I don't think there's even 1% of people that would make that left turn. Unless they're also a cop because that whole thing, you know how that works, right? No one would do that. Why? Because the cop is watching. But when we transgress against God, we do a crime against God. The fact that he's always watching us is something we know about maybe in theory, but that's an idea. That's an abstract idea. And you know what? If someone does a crime deal who's hurt. We don't realize that sin is a blemish. I should just tell us that every time a person commits a crime against God, there is an actual angel that is created, that is spawned by that behavior. And that creates distance, a barrier between man and God. And the Talmud warns us, don't think that the Almighty is easygoing and foregoes violations. The Almighty does not forgo a single violation. Completely Exact. Even if someone's completely righteous and they do one crime against God, they have to repent or suffer the consequences. There's no favoritism. There's no way for a person to do a crime against God and not have that register. There's no way to look away. God doesn't do that. If we realize that sin is really rebellion against God. And with God, you can't do any palm greasing and there's no statute of limitations. And it's an act of mutiny, not against a human autocrat, but the only power that really exists. A sin, a crime against God, is way worse than making that left turn. Yet it's all cleansed miraculously, wondrously with repentance. You change your identity, different person. You can't bring charges against me for the crimes of my twin. That's my doppelganger, it's not me. The Ram actually tells us that there is a custom to literally do a name change for someone who is a penitent to reinforce this idea, this commitment of being a new person. If the rules of our world were in place, repentance would be infeasible. But thank God it was created before the world was created. And it is indeed wondrous. Wonder number one. Well, how can we top that? Let's go. Wonder number two. Wonder number two is repentance cleanses all sins for all people. The theme of the Ramah tells us in chapter one, law number three, that repentance works for all sins. He repeats it again in chapter two, law number one. Even a person is a sinner their entire life. When a person repents on their deathbed, all their sins can be forgotten. Someone could be a terrible criminal against God. And have all of that completely expunged with a deathbed repentance. And our Sadists give us some pretty incredible examples of wicked people who repented. So for example, one of the worst people of Jewish history was the king of Israel named Menashe. And Menashe was just a terrible person. He committed all the crimes in the world. He even took his own son, and gave him to the priests of Moloch to be burnt alive. Awful person. Yet, what happened? He was kidnapped by the Babylonians. And they put him on a fire. Put him in a box with holes in the bottom so the fire would go into him and cause him to be roasted alive. And he started to petition all the idols that he worshipped his whole life. Help me, save me, spare me. And of course, they were not helpful for him when he needed the most. So then he remembered when he was a little kid, his father taught him a verse in Scripture that when you're in pain and you're suffering, you should return, i.e. repent, all the way back to God. God. So he cried out to the Almighty with all his heart, the God of his forefathers. And the angels started swatting. They pulled on not the fly swatter, but the prayer swatter, the repentance swatter. And every little portal through which prayer ascends to heaven and repentance ascends to heaven, they stomped it out. They were playing whack-a-mole with all the portals to heaven because they did not want Menashe. Menashe is too bad of a criminal. This person, too bad. We have to stop this. We cannot allow his prayer, his repentance, his penitence to be brought before God. So what did the Almighty do? The Almighty opened a back door. The Almighty dug a hole, so to speak, underneath his holy throne of glory and found a way to allow that repentance to ascend and the exact details of what happened afterwards is disputed did he survive literally or did he die was he completely restored to his throne or did he still lose his portion um but regardless the story of menashe our sages tell us is an example of someone who was a terrible terrible criminal but nevertheless True, sincere, genuine repentance can triumph over all manner of sin. Let me give you another example. The Talmud Book of Sanhedrin, page 96b, talks about a mass murderer who repented and actually converted and became Jewish and was accepted. Who is this? This is a man named Nevuzradin. So he's the general who's working for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he's going into the temple and murdering just at a crazy rate. And the Talmud says that when he got to the temple grounds, he saw blood near the altar and the blood was boiling, it was bubbling. So he asked the priest, whose blood is this? So the truth is, it was the blood of a righteous prophet named Zechariah. Zechariah reached out to the Jewish people to try to get them to repent, and they murdered him. And ever since they murdered him, his blood refused to quite. It was bubbling with rage. So when it Nebuchadnezzar saw this bubbly blood, the Talmud tells us, he asked about it, he inquired from the priests, what is this blood? They said to him, well, this is just a sacrifice. There's lots of sacrifices here. There's lots of blood. They don't want to tell the real story. So he said, okay, let's let's make sure. Let's inspect. So he brought all kinds of animals and he slaughtered them and says, like, compare the bloods. Are they the same or not? They're all different. So he said to the priests, you tell me where this blood comes from, this bubbly blood, or else I will flay you. I will comb off your flesh with the iron combs. So they said to him, the truth, this is the blood of the prophet Zechariah, who was a priest and a prophet, and told the Jewish people about the destruction of the temple. And they were so upset by his message, they literally killed the messenger. So when Nebuchadnezzar heard about this crime against Zechariah, he says, I'm going to make it stop bubbling. I will make it stop bubbling. So he brought over all the sages and murdered them, killed them right over there. I'm going to fix the people who did bad to you. The blood kept on bubbling. He brought little kids, slaughtered them. It didn't stop. He brought young priests, slaughtered them. It didn't stop. The Talmud says he killed 940,000 Jews, mass murder, and the blood didn't stop bubbling. So Nebuchadnezzar went over to the blood and said to the blood of Zechariah, Zechariah, I am killing all of Israel on your behalf. Do you want me to kill every single person? When he said that, the blood stopped bubbling. And then he said, wait a minute, I got a problem. The blood of Zechariah, it was only one person was killed. And the only way to get atonement, so to speak, for that crime of killing one person was to kill so many people and to have all this crazy, this whole incredible ceremony, awful ceremony. I just, I just murdered almost a million people. What's going to be with me? How will I be forgiven? So he abandoned his army. He sent his last will and testament to his house, abandoned his family, and he converted. And the Talmud actually concludes that he was accepted as a convert. He was able to repent for those crimes. Now you read this story and say, well, uh, me, Uh, I'm lost. Ah, I've done so many crimes against God. I'm so far, I'm so distant. And then you read this story about this awful butcher, a butcher, terrible person, mass murderer, killed almost a million people, innocent people. Yet, to a certain level, his repentance was accepted. That should surely reveal to us that no matter how far a person is, no matter how vile their behavior has become, no matter how awful and terrible and unconscionable the crimes have been, repentance is still within reach. As long as you're alive, you're perhaps able to do it. Now, I want to point out, if someone's a terrible sinner, they might will not aid them in their quest for repentance, but still repentance is open for all. And if it's open for Manasha and it's open for Nevuzradin, it's certainly open for us. This is pretty wondrous. Repentance works for all sins. And for all people, no matter how far you have strayed, no matter what your previous identity, your previous life was all about, repentance is still possible wonder. Number three, it's not all or nothing. If you want to repent, you're doing a name change, an identity change, but you don't need to finish all the paperwork on your changed identity to garner some of the benefits. So the Ram tells us that there are four steps to do complete repentance. Number one, you got to stop what you're doing. Number two, you have to regret what you did. Number three, you should commit to never do it again. Number four, you should confess. Four steps to repentance. And when a person is encountered with the same opportunity to transgress as they did previously, and they are able to overcome it, then they know that their repentance is indeed complete. Now, of course, these each one of these steps is multi-layered and multifaceted. There's a whole book like we, like we mentioned earlier about exactly how to do it. It sounds very cumbersome, but here comes one to number three if someone doesn't do a complete repentance, there's still a level of expiation, of atonement, of forgiveness that they have unlocked. Our sages tell us the power of a fluttering feeling of repentance. The great Rabbi Judah the Prince taught, look how great is repentance. If a person just has a feeling of repentance in their heart, right away they ascend. And how high do they ascend? Not 10 miles, not 20 miles, not 100 miles, but the distance of 500 years, which is the Kabbalistic term for how distant our world is from the kind of the next sphere. And that's just the first level, so to speak, of the firmament. And there are seven levels, very advanced stuff. I don't know exactly what it means. But a person ascends Again, with just a fluttering feeling of repentance, until they're standing right before God, Shuvah Yisrael and Hashem repent, O Israel, all the way to Hashem your God. Repentance ushers a person right before God, and even if they all they have is a fluttering feeling of repentance, that's sufficient. There's a famous Talmud the Book of Kiddushin, page forty nine B, that talks about marriage. When someone wants to do a halachic marriage, you have to convey something of value for witnesses and you have to say a very specific sentence to cement that transaction. But when a person adds a condition to their sentence, then the only way that the marriage can happen is if that condition is true. And the time talking about what if a person says all kinds of crazy conditions. So for example, if a person says, Behold, you are betrothed to me, you're married to me, which is the actual sentence. But then they add, on condition that I'm a great Torah scholar. Well, what does that mean? How great do you have to be of a Torah scholar for that marriage and that transaction and that condition to be valid? Says the Talmud, you don't have to be as great as Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues. It just means you have to know everything. In any manner of Torah, in any manner of wisdom, you, you, could be, you, you could be asked and you know the answer. Well, if someone says, marry me, be betrothed to me, on condition that I'm very mighty and strong, well, how strong do you have to be? Not like Avner, not like Yoav, just enough that your friends are intimidated by you. When a person says, marry me, on condition that I'm rich, how rich do you have to be? Not like Rockefeller and Rothschild and Bezos, just enough that people respect you because you are a wealthy man listen to this. If a man tells a woman, Behold, you are betrothed to me on condition, provided that I am a tzaddik. Now you look at this guy and he's he's, he's just not it. He's just not a tzaddik. He's a sinner, complete sinner. Is this marriage valid or not? Says the Talmud, yes. The marriage is valid. But wait a minute, he's a complete rasha. How could he say that? I'm a tzaddik and therefore the marriage, the condition was fulfilled. Says a Talmud. Shema, hear her, chuva, bedaito. Perhaps he had a fluttering feeling, a thought of repentance. And right away when he had that thought, it's just a thought. He didn't do the four steps. He didn't do the repentance. The thought alone, the small part, so to speak, of repentance can already make someone into a tzaddik. That is the power of repentance. Moreover, we talked about repentance being four parts. What if a person does three parts? They skip over a part. They don't fully regret what they did. They don't fully commit to do, to never do it again. They don't stop necessarily doing it. They don't do a full repentance. So we would think, well, we know whenever there's a mitzvah comprised of four parts, you got to do all four parts. So for example, you have tzitzis, right? You have tzitzis on a 4 corner garment, Suppose a person says, you know what? Ah, I can't do all four. Let me do three. How much of the mitzvah have you fulfilled? The answer is exactly zero. In fact, it's even worse because you're wearing a four-corner garment without scissors on it. But I, I've done three out of four. It doesn't matter. you got to do all four. A person wears tefillin, and instead of four compartments, they put only three. Someone like that has fulfilled exactly zero percent of the mitzvah of tefillin. But each part of repentance is a mitzvah on their own. And therefore, if someone just does a part of it, they have a thought, they have an inspiration, they have a fluttering feeling, they stop doing what they did, they commit to never do it again, even though they don't stop, they regret it, even though they didn't do anything else, they do vidu, even though they really haven't completed the gamut of repentance. Nevertheless, it works. To a certain level. Of course, it's not complete, but that is one of the wonders, the third wonder of repentance that a little bit goes a great distance. You know, the symbol of repentance is a chauffeur. And a chauffeur has an end on both sides, but a really small end that you blow in. And the other end where the sound comes out is very large. And that's almost symbolic of repentance in general. Your contribution is very small, but the impact is very great. Of course, you have to start it. You have to take the first step. If you don't blow into the shofar, nothing will come out. But if you blow even a little bit, a very powerful and resonant and evocative sound will come out of the other side. Whatever you blow into the mouthpiece, the money will make sure to amplify that and expand that and made the impact of that quite great. Repentance is quite wondrous, but we're only three out of seven. Let us continue with wonder number four. And this is very helpful for someone who had maybe a repentance season in the past. This is not their first rodeo. And to them, it seems like it's a sham. Cause you know what? Rabbi, you gave a podcast last year about it. I followed your rules, but you know what? Nothing changed. I reverted back to my previous behavior. So obviously repentance doesn't work. To this comes wonder number four. Repentance is complete and fixed, and it cannot be annulled with return to past behavior. Recidivism does not annul the repentance. Repentance. Once it's done, it is irreversible. The Rambam uses very strong terminology when he talks about repentance. He says when a person repents, they abandon their sin, they stop doing it, they regret it, they commit to never do it again, they confess. Ya'id Allah yodea talumos, God, the one who knows the unknown, testifies on him that he will never do it again. But what happens? Yom Kippur comes and goes, and you feel like you're slipping back into the same identity from beforehand. The answer is that the Eitzhahara intensifies its efforts after Yom Kippur. And that sin is a new sin. It's not the same sin. You were challenged anew and maybe you lost it, but you're not the same person. Recidivism is not really recidivism. It's a new thing. It's a new crime that you have to repent for, but it in no way calls into question the commitment and the efficacy of your repentance. So you know what? You repented last year, and you feel like it didn't really stick. It did stick. It just you don't know it. And the sin and all the concomitant effects that it causes, all that is gone, all that has been removed from the record, irrespective of your adherence to your commitment. That's a pretty wondrous thing and pretty amazing. Wonder number five, this is really incredible what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell it to you and you won't believe me. You'll say, no way, that's not true. And therefore, I will give you the Talmudic source, chapter and verse, page and number. Look at it yourself and tell me I'm making it up. Wonder number five is that the penitent is not just restored to being acceptable, to being a good person. Actually, the penitent is elevated above the completely righteous person who never sinned to begin with. You have one person, never sinned, completely righteous, pure, holy, from day one. You have another person who did sin, went to a very low place, but then repented. The net result of that is that the person who sinned, fell, got up, repented, is actually higher, closer to God, than the person who never fell to begin with. And you say, wait, wait, okay, this one, this one, this one you're making up. I'm not, I'll give you the source. The book of Brachos, Talmud Brachos, page 34b. Amar Rabbeva'u, Rabbeva'u says, Makom Shabalichuva omdim, the place where the ba'alei tshuva are standing, Saditim gemurim, complete Saditim, complete the righteous people, enam omdim, they cannot stand there. I'll read you the Rambam. Again, this is from Laws of Repentance, chapter seven, law number four. Al yidam ha'adam ba'alei tshuva, a person who is a who is a penitent, should not think in their head that he is distant from the righteous because of all the baggage of his past, all the sins and the iniquities and transgressions of the past. Ain hadavar kain, the matter is not so. Ella, rather, Ohuv, he's beloved, v'nechmad, and cherished before God, as if he never sinned to begin with. Not only that, moreover, scharoharbe, his reward is great because he tasted the taste of sin and was able to overcome it and was able to abstain from it, and was able to conquer the Yitzhara. Amru Chachamim. the Ramam quotes the Talmud, makom Shebal omdim, the place where the Balai stand, ain't Saditim gemur lamabo, even the complete righteous cannot stand there. Klomar, as if to say, maalasan, their stature, gedola is greater, maalazesh lochatum Olam, above those who never sinned to begin with. sheheim kofshin Yosher mehem, because they have to work, Harder to overcome the Yitzhah It's an amazing thing. It's not just that the wonders of repentance, it undoes it. Okay, you're a good citizen again. Oh no, it catapults the penitent to a level not accessible by people who never sinned in their lives. How wild and wondrous is that? The Talmud tells us in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, that... On Rosh Hashanah, the Almighty opens up three books. The first book is for the completely righteous, and they right away get signed into life. And the second book is for the completely wicked, and they right away get signed for death. And then the in-betweeners, they're in the third book, and their status is in limbo until Yom Kippur. If they repent, then they get life. And if they don't repent, they get death. So how many books do we have? Three books. One book for the righteous, one book for the wicked, and one book for everyone else. And the commentaries ask an obvious question. Righteous, they have their own book. made sense. One book for the righteous, their fate, their destiny is declared in Rosh Hashanah. The wicked, well, their fate is also declared in Rosh Hashanah, and therefore they need a second book. It's a very different fate. But the in-betweeners, they're in limbo. So why is there a need for a third book? Wait till Yom Kippur. And the in-betweeners that repented, they joined the tzaddikim. They joined book number one. And the ones who didn't repent, they joined book number two. Why do you have to three books? What a question. Have just two books. Be more economical. Save the paper. Recycle. Of course, I'm making a joke because... Nobody doesn't use these themes. We're just making a joke. But why is there a need for three books? And the Hasidic masters answer with an incredible idea. When you have someone who is an in-betweener, and they repent, they cannot join the Tzadikim Gemurim. They cannot join the book of the completely righteous because they're loftier than the completely righteous. And therefore, they need their own book because they are in a class of their own. The place where the righteous stand is very high. Completely righteous. Very high. But you know what's even higher? The Bali Chuva, The people who repent. They're even higher. They're not in the same book. They're in a different class. They must have their own ledger. The Ramam tells us, this is from chapter seven, law number six. Gedola Chuva, Great is repentance. Shemekarev, is Adma Shchina, brings a person close to the Shchina. If a person repents, that person cleaves to God. Yesterday, this person was hated and disgusted by God. But today, he's beloved and cherished and close. And a Yedid, a very close, beloved person of God. I want to add another amazing secret to this. Amazing secret. Which may actually explain the mechanism of this. Repentance is much more than just undoing the past. It can also be about changing the past, transforming the past, reclassifying the past. The Talmud Book of Yoma, page 86b on the top, tells us that there's a certain kind of repentance when it's done out of love of God that reclassifies crimes as mitzvot. Great is repentance because repentance reclassifies transgressions as mitzvos. And the secret. The name of a Baal tshuva. What is Baal tshuva? The word Baal means a master. The word Baal also means a husband. And the Kabbalists explain that a penitent is like a husband. And Shuva repentance, is like a wife. And repentance spawns children, i.e. merits, because merits are often used in Talmudic parlance as children. These are the children, for example, of Noah. Noah, says the Talmud, told Hoseim, the true children... The true progeny of the righteous is their good deeds. And therefore, a balchuva is a husband of chuva because via the chuva, the repentance process, they are creating mitzvos. And therefore, again, it's not just about undoing the past and bringing it back to zero and making it as if those crimes never happened. All the sins of your past can be reclassified as mitzvos. A person has a billion sins and they repent. Of course, it depends on how they repent. If they repent in one way, just makes it as if it was a mistake, it's not your fault. But if they repent out of love of God, they now have a billion mitzvos. And therefore, they leapfrog the righteous. Because the righteous, they have only a million mitzvos. The sinner does more sins than the righteous does mitzvos, most likely. And therefore, if you repent in a specific way, You could catapult above the righteous, completely righteous, because you could reclassify all those previous deeds that were in the time, at the time they happened, they were sins. Now they can become mitzvos, quite wondrous indeed. Okay, wonder number six. You could fix your sins from afar. You don't have to undo the damage where it was caused. And this this requires a little bit of a background. We read last week, this past week, in the parsha in the book of Devarim, in Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 11. This mitzvah, Moshe, tells the Jewish people, that I am commanded you today, it's not distant from you, it's not far from you. It's not in the heavens above. Who's going to go get it for me? It's not across the sea. Who will traverse the sea to get it for me? Rather, ki ve'lecha devar ma'od, the matter is very close to you. Beficha in your mouth, u'balvavcha, and in your heart, asoso to do it. There is a mitzvah that Moshe is commanded to the Jewish people. That's you don't have to go to heavens, you don't have to go across the sea. It's right, in, right within you, in your heart, and in your mouth to do it. Now, which mitzvah is it talking about? So the Ramban tells us it's referring to the mitzvah of tshuva of repentance. Repentance is not in the heavens above. It's not across the ocean, it's easy, it's close to us, it's in our mouth, in our hearts to do it. And the Reb Chaim says something fascinating. When a person does a sin, it's an act of mutiny against God. And because the entire universe hinges cabalistically on the deeds of man, Every crime against God redounds and penetrates all the spheres above. Not just the constellations, but even the the, the strata, so to speak, of spiritual worlds. All those are affected by the sins of man. One crime that man commits causes a tremendous disruption in the heavens above. And of course, the opposite is true as well. <laughs> one mitzvah, that causes a tremendous change for the positive throughout all the worlds. So this is one of the major themes of Raphael Valashner's amazing book, Nefesh HaChaim just the, the impact, the outsized impact of the deeds of man. We think that man's the small little thing. The truth is, everything hinges upon man. And therefore, we would think that, hey, if a person sins you have to go to the place where the sin caused the damage to fix it. That's what you would think. You got to travel to the heavens above to go rectify all the wrong that you've done. And the Almighty tells us this mitzvah is not in the heavens. You don't, to, you don't need to go seek out the heavens to figure out what you did wrong on the cosmic scale and try to rectify it. And it's not across the sea. You don't have to figure out All the ramifications of your sin that you are possibly not even aware of. And the fact that our deeds affect the whole world. It creates an atmosphere, a spiritual atmosphere. Just like if I spread CFCs, or if I, I don't know, have a coal plant, it's not just me who's affected. I don't want to talk about climate change or whatever like that because I don't know anything about politics or climate change. But the concept is that if I have a virus, it can affect other people. If I have something that causes pollution, it affects other people. That's the concept of externalities. That you can do whatever you want for yourself, but you can't do something that affects negatively other people. There are spiritual externalities. If I do a spiritual crime against God – Well, that affects the spiritual climate, the spiritual environment of the whole world. That makes a hole in the spiritual ozone layer. It makes us more vulnerable to spiritual punishment. It's exactly the same thing. So maybe you would think you have to go across the land, across the sea to find all the blemishes you've done to fix it. Says the Torah, no. You don't have to do that. You could fix it from where you are standing. That is how far-reaching the repentance is. Repentance goes up to heaven above to fix it. It goes across the land and across the seas, and it rectifies it, and even though you stay home. One of the Hasidic masters gave an amazing analogy for this. A funny one also. There was a thief who wanted a, who wanted a plunder a rich person's house. So he climbed on the roof of the mansion to try to find a way to get in, to find all the gold and to steal it all. And he found that the roof was just reinforced. It was reinforced with steel. There's no way to make a hole through. There's no way to get in. And he's so frustrated because he really wanted to do a, a crime, a robbery, a, a home invasion. And he's about to go home and he says, you know what? I'll just grab whatever I could, could get here. Well, let's see what's around on the roof. And he sees this big bolt, this big screw. He's like, ah, I'll take this. So he unscrews the screw and takes the the screw off and he hears a loud crash because the screw was attached to a massive chandelier and by him unscrewing the screw now the chandelier shattered and there was a huge boom and everyone hears it and the chandelier collapses they run into the roof and they find the guy and they bring him to court and the judge says you're guilty you're caught red-handed The person says, yeah, I'm guilty. I stole a screw. Don't charge me for the million-dollar chandelier that I broke. I'll pay for the screw. I don't know. What is this? Pretty big. It's 31. Maybe it's $10. He says, no, 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 no. You broke their chandelier. You're going to pay for that as well. Your benefit was really small. doesn't matter, but the damage was quite large. We would think that repentance works the same way. We would think that even though my benefit from the crime is very little, but the damage is so big, I should pay for all the damage. And therefore, the Torah tells us, repentance is not like that. Wonder number six! You just need to pay for the screw. Beficha don't, don't need to travel to heavens above. You don't need to cross over the sea. You repent where you are. And the magic of repentance, the wonder of repentance, the pre-world incredible wonderness of this Repentance is that it fixes it all from right where you are standing. And finally, wonder number seven: the alchemy of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day that's really designated for repentance. It's the kind of the crescendo of the ten days of repentance. It's the climax. Everything's building towards Yom Kippur, and it's a day designed to remove and cleanse all traces of any crimes against God. The verse tells us, and this day God will atone for you, to purify you from all your sins, close to God, you shall become pure. It's like a mikvah. Put something impure in and something pure comes out. Yom Kippur is like that. We come in impure and we emerge completely cleansed and pure. But there's a very big question about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur itself, the essence of the day, it provides atonement. So we perhaps would think that we don't need to do repentance. Hey, Yom Kippur, great gift. The might is going to purify us. Amazing. Where do I sign? How do I get out of this? All the crimes the previous year against God, the crimes against God, will all be cleansed. Amazing! But there's a catch. There's a catch. You have to do repentance as well. If you do repentance, Yom Kippur works. If you don't do repentance, Yom Kippur doesn't work for you. But here's the question. If a person repents on an average Tuesday in May, it's not anywhere near Yom Kippur, and they repent, They follow the rules and they they stop doing what they wanted to do, what what they were doing. They stop doing what they were doing. They regret. They commit to never do it again. They confess. The magic of repentance works. You just told me, wonder number one, it gets cleansed. No matter how bad you've been, it gets worse. So repentance works on every Tuesday in July and Hanukkah time and Pesach time. So if Yom Kippur needs repentance as well, what does Yom Kippur help? It means if you need repentance as well, then what difference does it make? The power of repentance is true every day. What is special about the repentance of Yom Kippur? So here's the answer. This is the alchemy of Yom Kippur. Normally, if a person has a thousand crimes... They want to repent, they have to repent a thousand times. Why? Every crime is its own barrier to man and God. Every crime is its own spiritual blemish and every crime needs to be addressed and tended to individually. And it's still amazing, it's still incredible that you could change your name for this crime and then you change your name for that crime and you keep on changing your name until eventually you solve all your problems. That is how it works all year round. It's amazing, it's wondrous. Yom Kippur doesn't work like that. Yom Kippur, if you are a penitent, if you're someone who is repenting, Yom Kippur accelerates the repentance to cover all of your sins. The Rambam tells us, atzmo shel Yom Kippur, the essence of Yom Kippur, mechaper lashavim, it provides atonement for those who are repenting. As long as you are repenting, Yom Kippur works for everything. The rest of the year, we got to deal with all of our problems piecemeal. Yom Kippur, we become a penitent and the money solves all our problems as one. And the idea being is that Yom Kippur, the way it works is everything is extrapolated. You were judged or you are viewed and evaluated, not just the way you are in isolation, in a vacuum, but the way you will end up in the event that your current path is maintained. If a person gets into a, a posture of repentance, on Yom Kippur, and they keep it up, again, let's just, let's just assume, we knew for sure that they're keeping this direction, and they're always getting a deeper connection with the Almighty, and they're always becoming more meticulous about their behavior and they're always investing more in their spiritual lives because it compounds upon each other. The Almighty Anyom Kippur, even though you're you're a starting point, you you took the first step of a 500-mile journey or maybe a 500-year journey, you took the first step. But the Almighty Anyom Kippur works differently. He doesn't judge you after one step. He judges you assuming that you're going to continue that way, that path, and he judges you the way you are at the end. And therefore, if you're a penitent in Yom Kippur, that is the pose, that is the posture that you're in, that's the direction, the trajectory that you're undergoing, well, then the Almighty extrapolates that to its very end, so to speak, of that journey, and judges you today based upon the way you're going to be in the absolute future. And therefore, if you're on a path of repentance, it's viewed by the heavenly court already today, as if that path has reached its conclusion. We're judged today, extrapolated over a lifetime. Repentance, of course, sometimes is a long process. But if you are a returner on Yom Kippur, you are already unlocking the forgiveness of Yom Kippur. And we're assuming, God assumes you've reached the very end already now. And that's the alchemy of Yom Kippur. Wonder number seven, the day of repentance, more than any of the days. It's a magical day because a tiny little bit of effort goes a huge, huge distance. And that is quite wondrous indeed. So we have seven wonders of repentance. Repentance preceded the world for a very good reason. Because if the world's created, these things are just they're just too wondrous. It's too supernatural. It abuts the trend. It violates the rules of our world. It has to be created ahead of time. Number one, repentance cleanses us from sin. A new person emerges. Don't judge me by the crimes of my doppelganger. Number two, no matter how far, how egregious the sin, repentance nevertheless works for it. Number three, it's not all or nothing. Every bit, even a fleeting thought. Right away brings you, ushers you before God and it counts. Number four, recidivism cannot undo repentance. It was real at the time. It sticks, even if the person reverts back to the previous ways. Number five, repentance catapults the penitent to the highest place, even higher than the completely righteous people. Number six, you don't need to fix all the damage that you brought about. You just got to pay for the screw that you took. And finally, Yom Kippur amplifies the repentance that we do. Yes, repentance is a bit scary, but I feel like if it's such a wonder, it's such a gift, it should inspire us to revisit this concept and to view it in a more positive fashion. We have an incredible gift. The packaging beforehand, before we started the packaging, was a little scary, but we see it's wondrous. The mighty is reaching out to us. He wants us to reach out back to him. Of course, there's a lot more to talk about with repentance. There's all kinds of things that inhibit repentance. And then there's the reverse repentance. You know about this? Reverse repentance. Maybe we could call it anti-penitence or anti-penitence. I'm trying to find a good name for it. When someone regrets their sins, their sins are annulled. But when someone regrets their mitzvahs, the same happens as well. Their mitzvos are annulled. And that's awful because a person could work really hard to do mitzvos. And then if they do the anti anti-pentance, reverse repentance, we're still looking for a good name for this. They regret their mitzvos, all the mitzvos get expunged as well. You're a different person, not the same person that committed them. But I have it on camera. I did all those mitzvos. Doesn't matter. That was someone else. That was your doppelganger. That's the scary, It's a, this double-edged sword over here, really scary stuff. And of course, most critically, the repentance that we've talked about is only for the crimes against God. If a person commits a crime against a fellow human, you have to secure their forgiveness. It's not enough to go to God. You have to get them to forgive you. As they say, there are some things that repentance cannot buy, but for everything else, we have 10 days to use this incredible divine gift. Overall, the concept is, the Almighty is close to us. He's close to us now. He's not going to be close to us later, or at least relatively. His hand is extended to us. He hopes that we will make the move. And when we do, he will help us get to the finish line. May we all be blessed with Eishanatava Matuka, a may we be inscribed and sealed and signed into the Book of Life. May we all have an amazing year upcoming, a year replete with all the blessings in the world, all manner of blessing, all our prayers should be answered. We should have an uplifting and meaningful Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and we should maximize and utilize the days of repentance. It should be an incredible year, not just for us, for our families, for the entire Jewish people, for all of humanity. Of course, we're thinking about our brethren in Israel as we always do. An amazing year upcoming. My email just is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.